Hello, I'm Merrick Schneider. Welcome to this podcast of articles from the Wall Street Journal, a presentation of Airs LA. You are listening to this recording, which is provided for the use of those who are blind or print impaired. Materials or items read on Airs LA are the copyrighted property of the original authors and publishers. No unauthorized use or duplication is permitted. Today's first article is titled, United States Suicides Reached a Record Last Year by Julie Wernow. We'll follow that up with Wintertime Illnesses Get Harder to Avoid by Brianna Abbott and John Camp. Then Amanda Foreman wrote an article, The Enduring Allure of a Close Shave. Andy Kessler has Magic Pills Are Coming. And then an article by Brenda Cronin, Constance gave me my life back. All these articles are from recent editions of the Wall Street Journal. So let's begin with the first article. United States suicides reached the record last year. America's mental health crisis drove suicides to a record number last year. Nearly 50,000 people in the United States lost their lives to suicide in 2022, according to a provisional tally from the National Center for Health Statistics. The agency said the final count would likely be higher. The suicide rate of 14.3 deaths per 100,000 people reached its highest level since 1941. The record reflects broad struggles to help people in mental distress following a pandemic that killed more than one million in the United States appended the economy and left many isolated and afraid. A shortage of health care workers, an increasingly toxic illicit drug supply, and the ubiquity of firearms have facilitated the rise in suicides, mental health experts said. There was a rupture in our economic health and social fabric. We're still experiencing the after effects of that, said Jeffrey Leichner, a psychologist who connects mental health and primary care at Sanford Health and operator of hospitals and clinics in the Dakotas, Minnesota, and Iowa. Men 75 and older had the highest suicide rate last year at nearly 44 per 100,000 people, double that for people 15 to 24. Firearm-related suicides became more common with age as people experienced declining health the loss of loved ones, and social isolation. While women have consistently been found to have suicidal thoughts more commonly, men are four times as likely to commit suicide. Some groups remain at extreme risk. Suicide rates for Native Americans and Alaska Natives are almost double the rates for other Americans. But there is some evidence that efforts to reach people in crisis are helping. Suicide rates for children 10 to 14 and people 15 to 24 declined by 18% and 9% respectively last year from 2021, bringing suicide rates in those groups back to pre-pandemic levels. Adults are learning how to talk to children about suicide, said Dr. Katie Hurley, senior clinical advisor at the Jed Foundation, a suicide prevention group. More work is necessary to reach women 25 to 34, she said. They were the only group of women for which suicide rates increased significantly in 2022. They're taking on young adulthood while the world is on fire, Hurley said.
Officials are trying to widen familiarity with a national suicide and crisis lifeline that received a nationwide number, 988, last year. About 6% of some 5,000 respondents in a study published in October in the journal JAMA Network, Open, reporting using 988 when they were in serious psychological distress. About a third of them said they would use the lifeline in the future. Mental health care is harder to find than before the pandemic. About half of people in the United States live in an area without a mental health professional, federal data show, and some 8,500 more would be needed to fill the gap. Most people rely on family doctors for mental health care, said Leichner at Sanford Health. Suicides are difficult to predict even by clinicians, research shows. Talkspace, an online therapy provider, is using artificial intelligence to help mental health providers identify patients at risk for suicide. New York City this month said it would make a Talkspace app called Teen Space available free to teenagers 13 to 17. People are feeling worse. That's why people are using these services more, said Dr. Nicole Benders Hadi, a psychiatrist and Talkspace chief medical officer. And now, wintertime illnesses get harder to avoid. Get ready for more sickness. COVID-19 is settling in as a wintertime fixture, and infections are expected to rise again as the weather cools and holiday gatherings pile up. The virus is on a collision course with the seasonal scourges of flu and respiratory syncytial virus, or RSV, which are circulating again after the pandemic disrupted their spread. The risk? More infections, more disruptions to schools, work, and holidays, and more strain on hospitals than before the pandemic. COVID has raised the baseline for winters to come. It's going to be a new normal. It's going to be three different viruses instead of two, said Catherine Brown, Massachusetts state epidemiologist. When COVID arrived, it threw the usual rhythm of respiratory infections into turmoil. COVID cases surged, while mitigation measures, including school shutdowns and social distancing, helped sideline flu and RSV. Those familiar cold weather foes bounced back last year. Now RSV infections are taking off again, and flu activity is increasing in most of the U.S., COVID hospitalizations appear to be edging up too. This may be the most normal, whatever normal means, season that we're going to see for some time, said Yvonne Maldonado, a pediatric infectious disease specialist at Stanford Medicine Children's Health. Flu and RSV killed thousands of people on their own during typical winters before the pandemic. COVID-19 isn't killing people as it once did, but it remains the deadliest of the three, in part because it is more active year-round. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention predicts hospitalizations this year will be about the same as last year, well above pre-pandemic levels. Even a milder season with the three viruses circulating together would likely mean more hospitalizations than just the severe season of flu and RSV, said Jason Asher, 
who directs a CDC forecasting department. More illness means more disruptions to life and work. The flu alone is responsible for billions of dollars in medical and economic costs and millions of lost workdays. COVID has led to more worker absences in recent months. There's a social burden to having emergency rooms fill up with coughing and sneezing people, said Kamikia Corbett-Hilaire, an immunologist and infectious disease expert at the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health. Adding another virus to that pool can make that worse. COVID concerns and confusion over whether to keep kids home have contributed to high rates of school absences, said Hetty Chang, executive director at Attendance Works, a group focused on curbing chronic absences. And doctors and pharmacies are already busier than in the past administering vaccines for all three viruses. COVID-19 vaccinations this season are moving slowly, data from late October show. A new drug is available this season to protect babies from RSV, but it is in short supply in part because of higher than expected demand. There is still time for people to get shots, which doctors said could help curb infections. Across the past winter season, when the CDC collected COVID-related data more comprehensively, The agency estimated that some 17% of the United States population got a shot. Other basic steps, including staying home when you are sick, washing your hands, or improving ventilation also help, especially now that COVID-19 is part of the mix. There's one more virus out there for you to get, said Justin Lessler, an infectious disease epidemiologist at the University of North Carolina. Your risk of getting sick has probably gone up. And now, the enduring allure of a close shave. November is a tough time for razors. Huge numbers of them haven't seen their owners since the start of Movember, the annual no-shave fundraiser for men's health. But the razors needn't fear. The urge of men to express themselves by trimming and removing their hair facial and otherwise, runs deep. Although no two cultures share the exact same attitude towards shaving, it has excited strong feelings in every time and place. The act is resonant with symbolism, especially religious and sexual. Even Paleothic man shaved his hair on occasion using shells or flint blades as a crude razor. Ancient Egypt was the earliest society to make hair removal a way of life for both sexes. By 3000 BC, the Egyptians were using gold and copper to manufacture razors with handles. The whole head was shaved and covered by a wig, a bald head being a practical solution against head lice and overheating. Hair's association with body odor and poor hygiene also made its absence a sign of purity. Around 1900 BC, the Egyptians started experimenting with debilitory paste made of beeswax and boiled caramel. The methods were so efficacious that many of them are still used today. The only parts never shaved were the eyebrows, except when mourning the death of a cat, a sacred animal in Egyptian culture. The Greco-Roman world adapted the shave look following Alexander the Great 
who thought beards were a liability in battle since they could be grabbed and pulled. The Romans took their cue from him. But they also shared the Egyptian obsession with body hair. The Roman fetish for tweezing created professional hair pluckers. The philosopher Seneca, who lived next door to a public bath, complained bitterly about the loud screaming from plucking sessions, which intruded upon the serenity he required for deep thoughts. Both pluckers and barbers disappeared during Rome's decline. Professional barbers only reappeared in significant numbers after 1163, when the Council of Tours banned the clergy, who often provided this service, from shedding blood of any kind. The skills of barber surgeons improved, unlike their utensils, which hardly changed at all till the English invented the foldable straight razor in the late 17th century. The innovation prompted a safety race between English and French blade manufacturers. The French surged ahead in the late 18th century with the Perret razor, which had protective guards on three sides. The English responded with the T-shaped razor patented by William Henson in 1847. In 1875, the United States leapfrogged its European rivals with electrolysis, still the best way to remove hair permanently. Nevertheless, the holy grail of a safe, self-shaving experience remained out of reach until King Camp Gillette, a traveling salesman from New York, worked with an engineer to produce the first disposable double-edged razor blade. His Gillette razor went on sale in 1903. By the end of World War I, he was selling millions, and not just to men. Gillette seized on the fashion for sleeveless summer dresses to market the Milady Decolette Gillette razor for the smooth underarm look. The campaign to convince women to use a traditionally male tool was helped by a series of scandals in the 1920s and 30s over tainted hair products. The worst involved Coremelu, a depilatory cream that was largely rat poison. The razor may be at least 50,000 years old, but it remains an essential tool, and it's a great stocking stuffer. And now, magic pills are coming. At healthcare conferences, someone always asks, what if there was a magic pill? one that could cure major diseases. What would the healthcare industry look like? Some emergency rooms and hospitals, but less doctors and spending? Inevitably, the discussion ends with, but of course, there is no magic pill. So we spend, spend, spend on healthcare from $1.4 trillion in 2000 in the United States to more than $4.3 trillion 18% of the economy in 2021. Could there be magic cures? History shows plenty of wonder drugs and treatments. Aspirin reduces inflammation. Penicillin and other antibiotics fight infections. Insulin treats diabetes. Stents unblock arteries. These treat but don't cure diseases. Plus, two-thirds of American adults are overweight or obese, which puts them at greater risk for many chronic diseases, such as heart disease and stroke. According to the National Institutes of Health, 
86% of healthcare costs are attributable to chronic disease. By now you may have heard about glucagon-like peptides, GLP-1, drugs that mimic these hormones like Novo Nordic's Ozempic and Wegovy and Eli Lilly's Manjaro seem to treat diabetes by lowering blood sugar levels. They also promote weight loss and lower the risk of heart disease. What can't GLP-1s do? Friend of mine with diabetes started taking Manjaro and now, because of shortages, takes Ozempic. He lost 70 pounds, got his A1C levels back to normal, and told me, I'm simply not hungry anymore. It's not even like I'm full. I used to throw back a whole pizza and a gallon of milk. Now a slice and a bottle of water is more than enough. The food I used to crave has no interest for me. Amazing. Goldman Sachs Research expects this to be a $100 billion market by 2030. It could save multiples of that in healthcare costs. Patients take these drugs via injectable pens. Pills are coming. Dare I say magic pills? Here's another magic cure. Israeli company Insatech, backed by Coke Industries, has made a helmet with 1,020 acoustic sources that when, when that when placed on a shaved head can focus ultrasound signals to specific spots in the brain. For patients with tremors, including some with Parkinson's disease, the system uses magnetic resonance imaging, similar to an MRI, to guide focused ultrasound to a specific spot in the brain which it heats to 113 degrees Fahrenheit. This creates a lesion which miraculously eliminates tremors with a less than 1% chance of side effects. Instatech CEO Dr. Maurice R. Frey tells me the company's incisionless brain surgery is in 200 medical centers. Its devices have been used to perform 20,000 procedures that cost 18000 to 20000 replacing 60000 electrode implanting brain surgery. He adds that the company has 35 ongoing trials investigating focused ultrasound for things like depression, obsessive-compulsive disorder, Alzheimer's, and even neurodegenerative diseases like ALS. One trial caught my eye. The Rockefeller Neuroscience Institute at West Virginia University has been running trials on curing opioid and substance abuse. After putting the ultrasound helmet on a patient, researchers apply triggers for drug use via images on virtual reality glasses and scents to look for areas where the brain lights up. Instead of heat, the focused ultrasound uses neuromodulation to excite the appropriate tissue. Yes, it sounds right out of a clockwork orange, but it works. I heard of one patient, a longtime opiate user, who said he hasn't had a craving for drugs in years. A study published in September in Frontiers in Psychology says the procedure actively reduced substance craving even 90 days later sounds similar to GLP-1s and food cravings. So far, 12 people have had the procedure, and Dr. Ferre says 
there has been no relapse or recurrence of cravings. A brave new world indeed. There are other promising technologies. CRISPR gene therapy can fix gene mutations for Duchenne's muscular dystrophy and coming soon are one-off treatments for sickle cell anemia. Even cancer treatment is changing rapidly. I paid $950 for the gallery blood test from Grail, a subsidiary of Illumina. Using AI, it looks for patterns in your blood that can identify over 50 different cancers, even at a very early stage. My test came back negative. Phew. And if it found cancer? The same mRNA that quickly turned out COVID vaccines from BioNTech and Moderna is being used to fight cancer, including hard-to-detect pancreatic cancer. Wouldn't that be a magic pill? Find cancer with a blood sample and take the appropriate mRNA pill before cancer requires expensive hospital care. For other ailments, medical chat box are already here. Type symptoms into an AI large language model and out pops a diagnosis. Google claims its MedPalm M2 scores 86.5 accuracy on United States medical license exam style questions. I doubt chatbox will ever be 100% accurate, but they will help augment doctors. And according to JAMA Internal Medicine, patients think chatbox are more empathetic than doctors 80% of the time anyway. Technology is changing medicine. Maybe there is a magic pill after all. And now, Constance gave me my life back. The pandemic was terrible, but it had its silver linings. Mine came early, in the pre-lockdown twilight. As COVID began to spread through New York City with appalling timing, I fractured my hip on March 5, 2020. It was repaired the next morning with two pins and a titanium rod. The staffer discharging me said my post-op regimen included a daily injection for a month. Being wary of needles, I found the notion of poking one into my stomach for 30 consecutive days as preposterous as performing my own orthopedic surgery. But I lived alone, and with the world closing down, faraway family couldn't fly in, and friends had their own obligations and medical concerns. The hospital suggested a visiting nurse, which sounded like care better suited to someone twice my age. I agreed, however, and two days later, Constance Evans showed up at my apartment. Constance, after a long commute in protective gear aboard an empty train, was sunny and optimistic. She examined my leg, which was swollen to the size of a linebacker's, and observed, You got hit with a ton of bricks but we're going to take those bricks and build something beautiful and strong. We got talking, and I don't even remember her giving me the first injection. But I recall vividly that as I healed and progressed from bed to walker to cane, the highlight of my day was Constance's visit. It seldom lasted long, but in 15 minutes, she imparted enough company care and conversation to restore a wobbly world to an even keel. She was cheerful and uncomplaining, 
seemingly unfazed by the pandemic's risk and inconveniences. She had patience to see, and a virus wasn't going to stop her. When I finally could hobble outside on a walker, I was shocked at how dismal the city was, with churches and gyms closed and sidewalks empty. Constant breeze through every morning and brought such spirit and life indoors that I was unaware of the pall over the world. On her days off, another nurse would come, each one pleasant and solicitous, but there was only one constant. The recovery was tedious, and I never lost my phobia about injections. On the morning of her final visit, Constance arrived with a bouquet of spring flowers. It's your graduation day, she said. I think of Constance when I come across such pandemic reminders as a crumpled mask in a coat pocket or dots on church pews and arrows on shop floors indicating where to sit or stand. Recently, I found my COVID-19 vaccination record card documenting my first shot and several boosters. I wonder if some days these artifacts will be auctioned to collectors seeking mementos of a once in a century event. According to the card, I had my first vaccine on March 1, 2021 at the same hospital where, almost a year earlier, I arrived in an ambulance with a smashed leg. I got my Pfizer shot and skipped out of the vaccine center feeling invincible. The broken hip is now a memory so distant I have to check for the scar to remember which leg had been damaged. I've never tested positive for COVID, and thanks to the aptly named Constance, I got my life back. That brings us to the end of today's articles. I'm Merrick Schneider, and I'll be back soon with more articles. Thank you for listening.